King James Version, Hebrews chapter 6, 1, 2, and 3. Brother Laws will be continuing our lesson we had this morning. So therefore, leaving the principles, the document of Christ, let us go unto him perfection and lay against the foundations of our receptions from the dead works and, and the faith toward God. One of the documents of baptism and laying on the hands and the resurrection of the death and the eternal judgment. And this will, we do it all, God permits. Well, I'm very happy to be with you again this evening. And I always count it as a great privilege to be able to address this fine audience, whether it be Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night. It's always a very uh, great privilege for me to be with you. And I'm very grateful for your presence as well. Those visitors that we have, we're very happy to have you. And we're thankful for your coming and encouraged to be back with us Wednesday night at 7 o'clock where we'll be studying from God's holy and inspired word once again and enjoying the wonderful fellowship that we enjoy each time that we come together. Thank you for the prayers that you have offered in and for our behalf. We're always solicitous of your prayers and we're thankful for them. Prayers of the saints mean a great deal for us, and we're thankful for them in every way. Thank you, Nat, for leading our singing tonight. Nat does such a fine job, and he works with our young people and does a fine job with that. And if you've ever been with Nat and and uh, watched him work with the young people, he has their best interest at heart. And I hope that you'll take a moment and express your appreciation for him and for his work for this congregation as well. For the scripture reading, thank you. Uh, tonight, Jerry, for that. And I'd like to go back to a passage of Scripture that I read this morning, and we studied somewhat Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. There's so much more that needs to be said about this, and I don't presume to uh, think that I'm going to be able to exhaust all that information about the eternal judgment, the day of reckoning that we face. This morning, I was trying to develop a biblical principle that I think is really right out of the Bible. And the first emphasis of that biblical principle is the fact of the judgment. And it is a fact. Uh, I studied different concepts with you, different passages with you this morning, showing how factual that really is. It is going to happen. There's going to be a great day of judgment, a great day of reckoning that we're going to have to face God Almighty one great day. It's a certain as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, we know that Jesus was raised from the dead. New Testament Christianity is based on that fact. And that fact is a certainty, just as certain as the day of reckoning that's going to be coming. The judgment is an eternal judgment that has eternal consequences for it. It's just as factual and certain as death. Hebrews 9.27. If you haven't Mark that in your Bible. You ought to do so. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this cometh the judgment. You see how the two are tied together. One is as certain as the other. Death is certain, and so is the judgment. You're not going to be able to get around death, and you're not going to be able to get around the judgment. It's going to happen for us all, as we will study more about tonight. It's just as certain and factual as the great promises of God. And I spent just a little bit of time this morning talking about some of the prophecies. And I love to study the Old Testament prophets. I believe that I could take that one element of the Bible, 
the prophecies of the Bible and prove its inspiration. And we might even take one element like that and prove the existence of God. Those prophecies had to come from somewhere, and here they are in front of us. We're reading them and studying them. And then we have the wonderful advantage of being able to read their fulfillment in the New Testament. And we looked at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. What a great prophecy that was. I could have gone to Isaiah chapter 53 or also Isaiah chapter 55. Wonderful prophecies about the coming of Christ and the nature of Jesus. And then read their fulfillments in the New Testament. We see the certainty of the matter. It's a fact. The promises of God are sure. If God makes a promise, it doesn't matter if he made it yesterday or a thousand years ago. The promises of God will come to pass. And all the promises God made in the Old Testament with regard to the coming of Christ have been fulfilled, save the second coming which is to come. That one is to be fulfilled, and it will be fulfilled. Point of emphasis is the promises of God are factual and sure, and so is the day of judgment. It's just as sure as the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises that God had given in the long ago, that looked down the corridors of time, he would say that the sun is coming. Lo and behold, the sun came just like God said he would come. Some prophecy 700 years before the time actually transpired, such as Isaiah, the old prophecy to Ahaz. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Matthew chapter 1, 22 and 23 picked up on that passage and said, Now this is fulfilled in Jesus. It's a fact. It's certain. So is the day of judgment. Now, with all of that before us, and I think that would be logically prior to any other consideration, is the fact of the day of judgment coming. Then we ought to be accepting of the day of judgment. We need to accept that fact. It's one thing to say, well, okay, it's going to happen. But it's another thing to embrace it, to embrace it to such a point where it changes our lives, to embrace it to such a point where we recognize I'm going to have to stand before God on the day of judgment and give an account to what I've done in this particular walk of life. And the Bible's very clear that I'm going to have to face Jesus in judgment. It's a fearful thing. Acts 17 and verse 30. Hebrews 12 and 23 are two verses that I cited this morning. It is a fearful thing to be judged by God Almighty. And God is going to judge us through Jesus Christ. He will be the judge, and I'll have to face him. And I tried to make as real as I possibly could how meaningless the excuses that we sometimes use to avoid our responsibility. Sometimes we use these excuses to get around the acceptance of the fact. And I went through a number of excuses uh, this morning, and I'll not rehearse those tonight, but you know all the standard excuses. We've all used them. I've used them myself. I'm afraid to do that, but that excuse won't work. Or I'm all alone and I can't follow your word, Lord, and I can't be a faithful Christian because I'm all by myself. That excuse is not going to work. And we studied that as to why. Well, Lord, I was tempted, and I just really can't because I was tempted to sin and I fell short by falling into sin and yielding to the temptation. Or Heavenly Father, on the day of judgment, you know, I might try to say, well, you know, they ridiculed me and they made fun of me. And I just couldn't live the Christian life. And I was afraid to live Christian life because I was afraid people might make fun of me and might accuse me and might rebuke me. Well, all those excuses, and we mentioned others, will not work. They will not be sufficient for us to be able to get out of our responsibility 
As I said, it is a fearful thing to be judged by Jesus Christ. And we cannot shirk our responsibility. We must accept the fact that there is a great day coming that I'm going to have to face Christ in judgment. But I want to continue just a little further with this study tonight, and I promise to be brief as best I possibly can. And you know me, those of you who know me, get a, I kind of get wound up sometimes in these points, and I get to talking about them, and the next thing I know, the time is gone. Now that everyone's awake, you're going <laughs> to... <laughs> You're going to be listening to this sermon, I know. I did something with this um, uh, machine in my pocket, and I apologize for that. I'll try to keep my hands out in front of me rather than in my pockets. One of the things that you and I need to recognize is it is a judgment. And I wanted to emphasize this point, not only the fact of it and the acceptance of the fact, but it's my judgment. It's your judgment. When we're talking about the New Testament and we're talking about this matter of being judged by God, I think sometimes we get lost in the idea, well, God's going to judge the world. And that's true. God's going to judge the world, but that means me personally. And sometimes we get lost in the fact that the world is going to be judged, but I'm not. And I might try to find some kind of solace in the idea, I'm going to squeak by or I'm going to do an end run. Because the group's going to be judged. But the Bible doesn't teach us that way, does it? It says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, I charge in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And I love the context of that particular passage, but I think I'll save my time for another great Bible verse which teaches this point, and it comes to us in Revelation chapter 20. And I am going to spend a little bit of time on this 20th chapter. This has been a heyday for those who love this dispensational premillennial theory and a playground for them to play in. I say play in because they misuse this passage more than any other in the pages of the Bible. Notice these particular matters in Revelation chapter 20. You have a key that's mentioned there in verse 1, a bottomless pit. Your translation may say abyss. You have a great chain. In verse 2, you have a dragon. Also in verse 2, you have a thousand years. That's five figures of expression, symbolic expressions. And what so many people want to do is they will take one and literalize it. There are five symbols here, not four, and literalize one. The one they like to literalize is a thousand years. Satan's going to be bound for a literal thousand years. They say, well, that's just a terrible mistake to make. When you realize that each one of these symbols are to be taken as figures of speech in this regard. But notice in verse 11, which is really more on my point tonight. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. For his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. I'd like to look at that verse in a moment, so I'll hold that in abeyance and go on with my discussion. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Notice that the sea and death, you may have grave there, really pertains to the physical. Whereas Hades refers more to the spiritual, 
the righteous being in paradise, the wicked in torment in Hades, a spiritual realm, a realm of departed spirits, the place of those who have died waiting the day of judgment. So there's a spiritual side of man. There is a physical side of man. There is a spiritual side of man. The physical side of man, sea and the grave. The spiritual side of man, awaiting in Hades, gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, this particular passage has reference to the judgment. And he's saying that everyone, whether small and great, are going to stand before God in judgment. It is a personal judgment. So it is certainly true that God judges the world. But it's going to be an individual judgment. I need to accept the fact of it. I need to accept that fact. And then I need to recognize it's my judgment. I'm going to have to face Christ on the day of judgment. And you and I have already studied this morning what a fearful thing that can be. Yes, Lord, but you know me. You know me. I came from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and all of my family, my great-grandfather was a member of the church. My grandfather was a faithful member of the church. My father's a member of the church, and here I am. Whole family, good Christian family, and um, everybody knows us. We have such a good reputation back there in Tennessee. But then he's going to ask, yeah, but what have you done? This judgment's going to be based on you. It's not going to be based on your great-grandfather or your grandfather or your father or your mother or your brothers and your sisters or the reputation you have or the reputation your family has. It's going to be based on what you have done. This is the point of Revelation 20, beginning at verse 11. It is a judgment. It is a personal judgment. It is my judgment that I'm going to have to face. Well, Lord, you know me. You know I attend services back there at the Broadway Church of Christ and a finer group of people you could not find anywhere. There are people who love God. There are people who love the Word of God. They got together and they worshiped God every time the doors were open. And I was right there with them. We are all in there together. And I was a part of that congregation. The Lord's going to say on the day of judgment, I'm not judging the congregation. I'm judging you. What about your part in this? This is the judgment. It is not only a worldwide judgment, it is a personal judgment that I'm going to have to face. This is the thrust of Revelation chapter 20 beginning in verse 11. I have to face this particular matter. Something that might help me see the significance of this is an illustration about the judgment that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 25. And there it is a story about a master who had three servants and he gave each one of them talents. To one servant he gave five talents, to another servant he gave two, and then to the third servant he gave one. And he left on a journey and he came back and there was a day of accounting. Our text here says, He made accounting of what he had given. Now the word uh, talent here means a sum of money. A certain amount of money was given to this one. This one received more money to invest as a good steward. And this one received money 
not as much as the five-talent man, but here's a two-talent man that was given money to use as a good steward for the master. And here's a one-talent man. And those of you who studied this account of the words of the master in Matthew chapter 25 understand very well how this turned out, that on the day of settling the accounts, when the master came back, the five-talent man said, I have five more talents to give you. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord was the response of the master. And the two-talent man came and said, well, I have two more talents that I have earned for you. And once again, he received the same reply from the master. But then there was a one-talent man. That one-talent man hid his talent in the ground, and he didn't produce anything. And he was described by the master as a wicked and a slothful servant. And he said, you could have at least given my talent, my money to the bank and let that receive interest off of that. I could have had at least the money, the investment, and the return on the interest. But you didn't even do that. You buried and put it in the ground. Now, sometimes the way we think about the judgment, we think, well, this little corporation here of three uh, members did a pretty good rate of return. They received eight talents. They returned 15. And that's not a bad rate of return here. This little corporation did a pretty good job here, if you think about it from that standpoint. You know, they uh, received eight talents. They brought back 15. Two doubled their efforts, and one brought back what he had received. He didn't lost anything. And as far as a business venture and a rate of return, that's a pretty good matter. But that's not the way the judgment works. That's the way we think. We think when God judges the world or the group we're a part of, it's going to count for something. What counts is what we have done. And he made a reckoning of each servant individually. What did you do? And he said, well, I brought five more. Well done. What did you do? Well, I brought two more back for you. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. What did you do? And the one talent man said, I didn't do anything. That was his crime. That was his sin. The point of emphasis for the present, though there are many wonderful principles that come from the passage, is a personal judgment. I've got to understand the fact of it, accept that fact, and realize the nature of the judgment, that God is going to be judging me personally. It's a fearful thing to be judged by Jesus Christ, as we've learned already. You know, of all the passages I might think of that would help us understand this biblical concept, I think I would go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and the verse of verse 10. Here's another good verse that you might want to mark in the pages of your Bible. Um, it's one that is uh, well worth our study. In fact, if I may, indulge me just a little bit here, is I'd like to talk about 2 Corinthians chapter 5 just for a minute. In the first part of this great paragraph, he talks about our earthly house. And I love the way Paul writes it here. He's talking about what's going to happen after I die. And that, of course, is interesting to us as children of God. We search the scriptures and we learn so much from our study of the scriptures about this particular point. He says, for we know, and I like the way he says it, 
because he has not bought into the modern concept that we know that we don't know anything today. He says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And he's talking about our eternal souls, our eternal spirits, which will one day face God in judgment. And the word destroyed there is a word which really means to take down. And he's talking about our physical life. He's talking about our physical being. It's going to deteriorate. It's going to be going down. Like you take a tent down. A tent's a temporary thing, isn't it? And you take it out and you put it up and you stay in it for a little while. And then you take it down and you pack it away. And that's the way our lives are physically. We're here for just a little while, and then they're taken down. We deteriorate, and we leave this walk of life. If I may, I'd like to go to Philippians chapter 1. And you're probably wondering, well, why is he going over there? Philippians 1, 23 is a different verse that helps us understand what we've just read and what we've just studied. Keep in mind our points about the judgment. In Philippians 1 and 23... I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. The word depart there means to lift up. Here in this passage, when death is described, it is saying something leaves the body and goes to God, goes back to God. So in the emphasis of Philippians 1 and 23, he's talking about the soul going back to God who gave it. The emphasis of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1 is the deterioration of the physical body, the taking down of the earthly tent of our tabernacle. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed, but putting it on, we may not be found naked. See, it just wouldn't be right. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The continual presence of the Spirit of God is our down payment on eternal life. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are home in the body, we are away from the Lord. That idea of home. While we're at home in the body, while we're in this body, we cannot be in the direct presence of the Lord. That's a sense in which the Lord is with us now, but not in a direct sense. He's saying that we cannot be in the very actual presence of the Lord while in this body. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, face to face with the Lord. We would rather be at home with the Lord. It really gives meaning to home sweet home. As you think about the fact of man leaving this physical walk of life and being with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Now I think that verse, verse 9, is very interesting. Because I think couched in verse 9 is the concept. That whether I'm on this side of eternity 
or that side of eternity, I'm going to try my best to please him. I'm going to be pleasing him. An activity is surely implied over there on life's other side by usage of such language. But then to the real point, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And that's really our point about the judgment. It's a personal judgment. And I guess if I had one verse to pick out which really teaches and explains to me the judgment, I'd go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, and I'd look to these points. For we, that's, that, that's universal, that's everybody. We must, it's obligatory, all, everyone, appear before the judgment, the judicial reckoning of God Almighty, seat of Christ, the authority, so that each one may receive what is due, a just judgment for what he has done, for how we have lived in the body, whether good or bad. It's a powerful passage, and when you break it down in its constituent elements, it teaches us a great deal about the judgment, a personal judgment that I have to face as an individual. Will I face it as a faithful child of God? Or will I face it in rebellion to God and unfaithful? It is a fearful thing to be judged by Jesus personally. Therefore, I'm motivated to do my best to please the Lord as he spoke about the matter in our verse 9. I want to press another matter as I look at this biblical principle not only the fact of it, but accepting the fact of a personal judgment. And I'd like to discuss the basis of it. The basis of the judgment tonight will be the Word of God. Now, I mentioned earlier that I'd like to go back to Revelation 20, and I think this is a good time to do that. Because in Revelation 20, this point is also made. I sort of skipped over it a moment ago because I was emphasizing the personal nature of the judgment, how that each of us must give an account for what we've done in this life before Christ. But notice also the standard of the judgment, which is also equally important. By the time you get to Revelation 20 and verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. That's quite a scene, isn't it? The great movers and shakers the little people, the poor people, all of us will stand before God, the throne of God. And books were opened. This bookkeeping, divine bookkeeping system, is some idea to give us the concept of God is holding us accountable for how we've lived in this life. And as we're going to see, the books that are opened is one of those great books is the Word of God, the Bible. Then another book was opened which is the book of life. I think this book of life is just a figurative reference to tell us that God's record-keeping system, he knows who are his, he knows who belongs to him, and that you and I want our name written in the Lamb's book of life. And this particular book is referenced a number of times in the book of Revelation. And he says in that particular regard, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, 
according to what they had done. And so the standard, no doubt there, must have reference to the divine standard, the Word of God, that our lives are going to be held up against that. And there, in turn, we're going to have to give an account for what we have done. Now, John chapter 12 and 48 is not a figurative passage. John 12 and 48 tells us that we will be judged by the gospel of Christ. The word that I have spoken, Jesus said, the same will judge you in the last day. And there's nothing figurative or symbolic about that reference. Here, I think the symbolic reference in Revelation 20 gives us more of a picturesque idea of what's going on. There is a sense in which the basis, the standard of judgment is the word of God. And we're going to be held up against that. And our lives are going to be judged by that. Do you know a good story about judgment takes place in Daniel chapter 5? Daniel chapter 5. And even though time doesn't give me opportunity to discuss all the intricacies of that great chapter and that great prophecy, book of prophecy, Daniel is brought in because old Belshazzar, he's had a drunken feast. You know what he did? The vessels of gold that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem by his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, they brought those vessels of gold out and they were drinking out of them, drinking out of those bowls, drinking out of those goblets, and in turn praising their pagan gods. And an arm came out from the darkness and wrote on that plaster wall, Mini, Mini, Tikal, Ufarsen. And he was shocked. If you read the King James Version of that section, it's almost like his knees were knocking. It's almost as if the ligaments turned loose and he had no control of his physical uh, muscles and body. He was so shaken. The passage says... His countenance changed. He changed colors. He went white when he saw that arm writing on the wall. And he said, bring in all these wise men. Bring in all of the uh, soothsayers and, and all of the magicians and the astrologers of the Chaldeans who were famed for their ability to reason and reason and look into these matters. And none of them could decipher and interpret, translate, many, many Tikalufarsim. And the queen came in, she says, you know, I remember back during the days of Nebuchadnezzar that when they had taken the city of Jerusalem, they brought back with them a young fellow back then who could interpret all these dreams. He had the spirit of God within him whereby he could explain these particular matters and, and, and interpret them. And he did that for Nebuchadnezzar. You ought to bring him in and and let him see if he can answer that. And O Belshazzar brought Belshazzar in. That is his Babylonian name. His Hebrew name was Daniel. The angel told Daniel, you're greatly beloved by God. And Belshazzar said, you know, if you can answer this and explain what that hand is written on the wall, I'll give you a purple robe to put on. And I'll give you a gold chain put around your neck. And I'll make you third in command of the entire empire. Daniel said, you can keep your gifts. I serve a God who interprets that. And he goes through a very interesting discussion about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. A man filled with pride and would not give God the glory. And basically he's saying the same thing's happening to you. He said, now I'm going to tell you what that means. Many... 
Many is the idea that your nation's going to be divided. Tikal, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Ufarsan, you're going to be destroyed, and it's going to be taken in the hands of those who are coming after you. And you know, that very night, Belshazzar died. God brought it about. It's a story about judgment. The basis of judgment, the word of God. There's no alternative to the basis of judgment. We're going to have to understand it. We're going to have to learn it. We're going to have to apply it to our lives. Just as we saw in the days of Daniel and Daniel chapter 5, a man, one of the great kings of the world, who's known in world history, was judged by God. It was a fearful thing. He shook when he realized this was happening to him. It is a fearful thing to be judged by Christ. But we must realize that that judgment is based on the word of God. The Bible tells us, Mark chapter 16, 15 and 16, a passage that comes to mind at the present, that there's going to be a basis for the judgment. And that judgment is the word of God. Notice how Jesus phrased it for us, and I turn for our benefit and to rehearse that statement, as I know many of you already know it. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This is Mark's version of the Great Commission, found in a more fuller account in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. If we do not do what God has told us, we will face his judgment and his wrath. And just like Daniel told Belshazzar, you and I are going to hear, this is what the book says, but this is what you did. This is what the book says, but this is what you did not do. This is what the book says, but this is how you acted and how you behaved. This is the standard of your judgment, but this is your life. You will see that the two do not measure up. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. Matthew chapter 7. It is the basis of judgment. I think what you have before us is the basic biblical principle of judgment. There's the fact of it. There is also the matter of the acceptance of the fact. There is the judgment itself, which is very personal. And then there's the standard by which we will be judged. It is the word of God. Now, in no way have we exhausted all of the important material involved in this subject. In no way have we been able to say everything that we'd like to say with regard to the biblical view of judgment. But this is sufficient for us to know and understand. I'm going to be judged, and I better get ready for it. I need to repent of my sins and change my life for what is right. I need to confess my faith in Christ and be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. And let's stop arguing about that. And let's stop trying to end run around that. Let's start doing that. And then living the Christian life. 
And let's stop arguing about that. Whether the Christian can do this or whether the Christian cannot do that. Let's read what the Bible says and start doing that. Because we know it's the basis of our judgment. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Christ tonight, we stand prepared to help you. If you don't know enough about the gospel tonight, let's sit down and study it out from the pages of the New Testament. If you do know, you know what you need to do and you're willing to do it. Let's do it now. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.